0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry, or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5, and we'll be in the verses that Jackie just read for us. As you're turning there, my name's Jamin. If you are new to Citizens, I'm one of the pastors here, welcome. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us uh, you turn to Romans 5, and I just want to read through four passages of Scripture to just to reorient us in um, the truths that we started considering last week. Romans 6:11 says this: "So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus." Colossians 1:28: "Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present." Everyone mature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Ephesians 1.15, So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Each of those verses has a short phrase in it that we find all over the New Testament. In Christ. And being in Christ is at the very heart of of what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. It means that we're united to him. When theologians talk about this, they use the phrase union with Christ. When Jesus talks about it, he compares it to the way a branch is connected to a vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, he says in John 15, 5, uh, which means completely dependent on the vine for life and flourishing and a future. And As the Bible unpacks the breadth and depth of this, some verses talk about being uh, in Christ as united to Jesus's identity. Others talk about being united to his story. Others talk about being united to his people. And so we have an image that captures all of that, uh, identity being united to Jesus's Identity means what's true about him is true about us in him. Being united to his story means that we're united to what he has done, is doing, and will do. Being united to his people means that we are in Christ with one another. Uh, We began a series called In Christ last week, and all of that is recap from last week. If you missed, Last week, please go and and listen to it if you can. Uh, But we're gonna be in this truth uh, this fall in Christ. Last week, I offered an outline for every week, uh, three things that we will consider every single Sunday uh, of this series. And this is gonna help uh, me think. I think it will help us not just to listen and learn, but to be challenged and encouraged and to engage and to be convicted and all of that. So here are the three points there's a truth to embrace in Christ. A lie to renounce through Christ and a step to take with Christ. A truth to embrace, a lie to renounce, a step to take. That's our outline this morning. A few years ago, I went on a fly fishing trip uh, with a group of pastors in Colorado. Um, It was in the middle of summer. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but it gets pretty hot in Texas during the summer. And so I was excited to get out of the heat and to get to the mountains. And one of the days I was there, me and uh, another pastor uh, were fishing with a guide. And we met that guide early in the morning at an at a, a outfitter in a small mountain town in Colorado. And uh, he was a young guy, younger than me at least. And um, I shook his hand and he looked at me and just stared at me. Um, and he said, you look familiar. And I said, well, I'm from Texas. And he said, well, I'm from Texas. And he said, well, I grew up in Highland Park. And I said, I don't live in Highland Park. <laughs> um, I said, but I am a pastor in Plano. And then it, it clicked. He said, you spoke at a youth camp that I attended when I was in high school. And he said, your name's like Jasmine or something like that, right? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm Jasmine. I'm just..." It was close enough. Uh, And that morning we spent time fishing and he taught us and uh, we heard his story of how he got from Dallas to this mountain town in Colorado. He was awesome, incredible fisherman, an incredible guide. Uh, And at some point in the river, I asked him about his relationship with Jesus and just where he was and all that. And he said, I don't really do any of that anymore. Um, He talked about not really believing in God or or not being sure about all of it. And at one point, he looked around to the river and the mountains, and he said, this is my church now. And out here, no one tells me what to do. I was in my car a few days ago listening to a podcast, and I'm listening to the podcast, and an advertisement comes on. It's a commercial. And I don't know if you do this, but every time that starts, I just hit the skip forward button, 30 seconds So I skipped forward 30 seconds, the commercial was still on. So I did it again and I caught the last line of the commercial. And the last line of the commercial was this, there is no limit to what you can do. And so I skipped back to the start of the commercial, because I needed to know what they were selling that made people limitless. It had to be superpowers or something. And it was an advertisement for an online university. And uh, it's basically the idea is get your degree here and the whole world just opens up to you. Um, I get it. We hear that kind of thing all the time. That's just the language of advertisement. But it's a really bold claim. It it doesn't say get a normal degree and live an ordinary life and that's just fine. No, there's no limit to what you can do. Several years ago, I was in a Starbucks meeting with a friend who I love. And uh, this friend was days away, days away from leaving his wife and kids to pursue another life with other people. And he'd been to Bible college and been involved in good churches. And uh, at some point that morning, he told me his mind was made up. He's leaving. And I knew what he knew. I knew that he knew the Bible just like I did. And so I asked, what do you think God wants you to do? And he said, God wants me to be happy. If there's a thread that runs through all of that, Those are different stories and different conversations for sure. There's a lot of ways that those things are not the same. But if there was a thread, a fisherman who calls the river his church and finds freedom in the absence of being told what to do, a college commercial that sells degrees and a limitless life, a friend who knows his Bible but will chase the kind of happiness that leaves his wife and kids behind and use God to defend his actions. In all of that, Maybe I didn't land on the best words for it, but in all of that, there's some sort of belief that real life is found in being free. Free of rules, free of limits, free of a God who defines happiness different than I do, free to pursue what I want, unencumbered by anyone or anything. And it's a vision for what makes life good. And we hear it spread throughout all that. It's a vision for what keeps me from living the good life and what I need in order to live it. And Mark Sayers is an Australian pastor and author. And in one of his books, he makes a a list of the belief statements that mark our day that kind of define and capture the heart of where we are. And the first is this. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. What's kind of the, the number one creed or statement of faith that marks our day and age, that the highest good, the good life, is found in individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression? Now, each of those can be a good thing in people's lives, right? I, th- I think there's probably a way to baptize all of that and to see all that through a Christian lens, but how most of us experience that and how most people are pursuing this is that when I think about my life... And when I think about what's wrong and what I need, the problem is out there. And the answer is in here. And if I can just shake off all the shackles of rules and limits or any authority that tells me that what I want is not good for me, then I can be truly free. I can be free to pursue the good life as I define it. And that's a really compelling idea. That's a super attractive idea. Uh, When my fisherman friend looked at the river and the mountains and said, this is my church and out here no one tells me what to do, part of me thought that sounds really nice. That sounds really nice. I could just move out here and be like Brad Pitt in that frishing movie and have not have to submit my life to anyone or be accountable to anything. And you can probably think of examples in your own lives where you hear this kind of message, where you experience somebody that's holding out this kind of vision for what makes life life. Conversations you've had, commercials you've heard, songs you listen to, or even thoughts that you think. We are living, friends, at a time where the pervasive belief is that life is only as good as we are sovereign over it able to define happiness and ourselves and pursue our desires free of any external opposition or restraint. And so the good life right now is the life as I'm able to make it. And and in all of that, here's what we do with God. In all of that, we either deny God, ignore God, or redefine God. Here's a truth to embrace in Christ. You were made to be with God God is with you in Christ. You were made to be with God, and God is with you in Christ. Look with me again at Romans 5, 17 through 19. "'For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ.' Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. If you know anything about the book of Romans, you know that every single verse in Romans could be like a hundred sermons. There's so much goodness, there's so much depth, at a very high level, the section of Scripture is saying this, there is death in Adam, there is life in Christ. In fact, my Bible has titles over each section, and right above verse 12, it says that as the title, death in Adam, life in Christ. We get that language in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, in Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive. And this passage is making a claim that takes us all the way back to Genesis. And so that's where we need to go, all the way back to Genesis, to the beginning of the story and back to the way that God made us and what went wrong. I know that many of us in the room know this story. It's really important to remember. Before anything existed, God was. He always has been, and God, as a trinity of love, created out of love as an act of love. And you know what the crowning achievement of His creation was? You. Humanity. Uh, He makes light and land and sky and sea and all things came into being, all things made through him. He made Adam and Eve. He made them in his image of all that God made. Nothing was like God in the way that humanity was like God. And he gave them a holy vocation to take care of God's world, to co-create with God by having children and by cultivating the garden that he placed them in as their forever home. And life was awesome life was amazing. No pain, no tears, just joy. The food was great. It never got above 75 degrees. I don't have a verse for that. I just know it in my heart. But what was most amazing is God. What made it amazing was the presence of God. God was the gift. And and life was life because God was there. God spoke to them. God was with them. They enjoyed uninterrupted communion with God. It means they got to be in his presence and life was life because God was there. And this, according to the Bible, this is the good life. Life with God is the good life. This is the life we were made for, a God-glorifying vocation, some people to share life with, all in the presence of God, and what makes life alive is God being there. C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who only has God. Outside of Scripture, I think the thing that I've quoted here the most in in my time preaching here uh, is Augustine when he says, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you why do those things, Lewis and Augustine, why do they ring as deeply true as they do? Because we were made to be with God. Uh, our heart longs for something that's bigger than us, that's outside of us. And so Adam and Eve are there living the good life, loved, full of purpose, free of shame with their God. And what happens? God's great enemy, the liar, the accuser, slithers into the story with hate in his heart and lies in his mouth, and he sells a different version of the good life that does not lead to life, it leads to death, death in Adam, as Romans says. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Part of the good life, part of living with God and enjoying life with God was honoring the limits given by God. Lots of really great... What's the tree? Why did God give that command? Lots of really great answers out there uh, that explain all that. But here's what's most important, is it was a law, it was a rule, it was a limit given by a God who could be trusted, who had not withheld in the slightest. He had generously filled creation with all kinds of good things, but mostly with himself. And so it was a law given by a good God for good reasons. And see, goodness, see the scheme of the enemy... He makes three counterclaims to the words of God. You will not die. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God. And in the counterclaim, he's saying God has withheld from you. There's something on the other side of breaking God's law, and the world's just going to open up to you. Do the thing that God told you not to do, and life will be so much better. He offers a competing vision of the good life, and it's a life of autonomy apart from God. You will not die, you will live, you will see, you will be like God. And here's the tragic irony. They already had all of that with God. Already. Already alive. God had already opened their eyes. God had already made them in his likeness. Satan is offering what is not his to give by getting them to doubt what they already had. And they sin against God. And sin enters the world through that act of disobedience and spreads. I was helped by this quote by Alan Noble. The first sin is the invitation to define for ourselves who we are outside of what God has already declared. From the Garden of Eden, humanity's fundamental rebellion against God has been a rebellion of autonomy Adam and Eve were given a clear law and chose to become a law unto themselves. The history of humanity has followed this example. Here's a lie to renounce through Christ Life is better without God. The truth to embrace is you were made to be with God. The lie to renounce is life is better without God. I hear this lie, you hear this lie. We hear this lie. Um, we believe this lie. Maybe we hear it in, in different language. God withholds. God is not for me. God does not love me. God has not helped me. I don't have time for God. I'm fine without God. I'm too messy for God. I don't know enough about God. He is not real. He is not good. He does not care. Life with him is boring. Life with him is irrational. Life with him has gotten me nowhere. The content on the lie of the lie will take on any form that makes us believe that life is better without him, that we can live without him. So when Romans 5 says death spread through the act of disobedience, it's pointing to this moment and what it's saying is we are all born into this world, believing the same lie, committing the same sin, choosing the same path. We all share in that and we all pursue a life without God. That does not lead to life, it leads to death. Uh, Here's why this is week two of the In Christ series. Um, This is all basic story that Christianity tells. This is very much so a high-level biblical understanding of how we got where we are. But here's why we need this week two of the In Christ series. Because life in Christ, please hear me, life in Christ is not one of many ways to live. It's one of two ways to live. In Adam, believing lies apart from God, or in Christ, embracing truth, reunited with God. There's only two ways, and only one of those two ways actually leads to life. And what a host of voices are saying around us, and what our hearts are fickle easily deceived hearts are led to believe is that humanity's greatest problem is not sin inside of us. The greatest problem is anything outside of us that restricts our pursuit of our desires or limits our ability to define for ourselves what is good, what is life, and what is right. And and, and if you find God useful in that pursuit in some way, use him, but if not, you don't need him. But don't let anything stop you. Life is only as good as we are sovereign over it. And those are simply different words for the same lie that life is better without God. And what God is saying to us this morning, what God through His Word has said for centuries, is that our greatest problem are the lies that fill our hearts and the sin that marks our life that separates us from the God we were made to be with. Union with Christ, being in Christ, is the solution to that problem. And we have several more weeks in this series. But if we don't agree that this is humanity's problem, nothing else is going to matter. We talked about John 15 last week. I'm the vine, you're the branches. It's Jesus's metaphor for union with him. Um, And in thinking about that, I remembered a few years ago uh, when my girls, they were younger than they are now, they came in the house and they said, dad, we need a really big bowl. And I said, why? And they said, we're going to plant a tree. And then they showed me this tree limb that they found in the yard. Uh, We live in central Plano in an older neighborhood, and we have these huge oak trees in our front yard. I'm not trying to brag. It had stormed the night before, and this uh, small limb had been severed uh, from the tree by the wind. It was a a small limb with big green leaves, and the wind had severed it from the tree. And their plan was to take this severed limb and to put it in a bowl with dirt until it became a tree. And I said, oh, that won't work. (laughs) Tree limbs don't become trees. They are part of the tree. They need the tree. And they looked at me like I had no idea what I was talking about. (laughs) And they got a bowl, and they went outside, and they filled it with dirt, and they watered it. And the next day, they could tell nothing was happening, so they got rid of the bowl, and they put the limb directly in the dirt. They planted it in the dirt, and they watered it some more. And over the next few days and weeks, the leaves crumbled, and the bark turned gray. And one of my daughters asked, Dad... Do you think it needs more water? And I said, no honey, it, need, it needs a tree. It can't live without the tree. And the limb didn't turn into a new tree, it turned into a very dead limb. And if you will allow it, my friend, this childish illustration can tell us something about us. We are all born into this world as the severed limb. You were made to be with God, to be connected to God, to find life in God. We are not creator, we're creation. And we are creation very dependent on Creator. And we feel that separation from God, whether we would name it that or not, made for God and our hearts are restless until we're reconnected with Him. Restless until we find rest in Him. And we follow all kinds of lies and make all kinds of empty attempts to deny our nature and think we can become something all on our own. And we plant our severed lives in the ground and we think we just need more of something, more freedom to do what we want, more comfort to make life feel less empty, more achievement to convince me that I can stand on my own. Or if I just stay busy enough, I don't have to pay attention to how my soul has crumbled and grayed, or life is not what it should be, but I am content enough with trivial things to convince myself I'm okay without God and we're born into the world oh and there is a religious expression of this please hear me where we talk about God believe in a version of God but it's all on our own terms if I believe in a God who never tells me no I am my own God if I worship a God who never disagrees with me I worship myself We are made in the image of God, and if I don't believe there are things in me that that God wants to change, I have made a false God in the image of myself. The Christianity that wants the benefits of salvation without the cost of discipleship is not Christianity. It's the limb in the ground that thinks it's okay because it knows the tree exists, but that doesn't make it any more alive. The need, friends, is to be reunited with God. My need, your need. Is to be reunited with the real God, the God of the Bible, the only true God. We were made to be with God, and here's the good news of the gospel of Jesus: God is with you in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. In Christ, we're made right with God. You know what's so special about Jesus? He never believed the lie, not for a moment. Satan comes in Matthew 4 and tries the same lie on him as he tried in the garden. Life is better without God. Disobey God. Follow a path that doesn't need God. And Jesus says, I shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus says, I will not put the Lord my God to the test. And Jesus says, I will worship and serve only God. I am not better off without God. Life is life only when life is with God. Jesus was obedient in life, faithful in death victorious in resurrection, where Adam failed, where we fail, Jesus succeeds. And in his love, he invites us by faith to share in his life and be reunited with God. So in Christ, our severed lives are connected to him through faith and all that he's done and all that he is. All who trust him are alive with God, right with God right now. You were made to be with God and God is with you in Christ. So Christian, you are alive and life is life because God is with you. The presence of God is with you, both now in part and one day in full. And that, and that alone is the good life, life with God in Christ. And so if I think of this good life in light of the stories we started with this morning, uh, God does tell us what to do. Um, He tells us who we are, but his word is for our good. And surely the one who makes the mountains and holds the rivers can be trusted to know what's best for us. And we're not limitless. There are limits to what we can do, but life is not found in the absence of limits. But what is limitless is how deeply we are loved by God. And it's okay to live an ordinary, limited life as those who are extraordinarily loved in Christ. God does want us to be happy but it's a happiness as defined by our Savior and Lord, King Jesus, who invites us into the joy of resting in His love and following His commands. There is no lasting happiness with God apart from obedience to God. Here's a truth to embrace in Christ. You were made to be with God and God is with you in Christ. Here's a lie to renounce through Christ. Life is better without God, it's not. And in light of all that, what's a step to take with Christ? Um, There's two groups of people in the room, according to Romans. And the steps are going to be different, depending on what group you're in. And the two groups are this, in Adam or in Christ. And so if you are here and you are not a Christian, I am so glad that you are here. But you, my friend, have not yet been made right with God. You are right now the severed limb. And I need you to hear this. No amount of water is going to help you become what you were meant to be. No amount of right behavior, no amount of money, no amount of achieving the suburban dream, no amount of social clout or career achievement, no amount of self-actualization or following your heart will help you live the way that you were meant to live. And you may not agree with this, but you miss God. You miss him. And you were made to be with him and you are far from him and what is wrong in your life is wrong because you're living without him. And so the step that you are invited to take, my friend, is to repent of your sin, repent of believing and living like life is better without God. Put your faith in Jesus who forgives us of our sin, who reunites us with the God who we've missed our whole lives so that we might live with him both now and forever in Christ. Look, it's what God brought you here to hear this morning whoever you are, wherever you are, that the good life is the life with God and that life is only available in Jesus. If you are here and you are a Christian, God is with you in Christ. You're not the severed limb. You've been reunited with God in Christ. You're connected to the vine. And here's a simple step to take with Christ. It's just a prayer that I'm gonna invite you to pray. Um, At some point today, tomorrow, before you leave here this morning, would you pray to God and say this, God, you are with me. Through Jesus, in Christ, God, you are with me. And this is gonna force something. For hey, Look, friends, I don't wanna just preach sermons about a God I never spend time with. Uh, you don't wanna to come to church and hear sermons about a God you never talk to. Take time, pray, tell God, God you are with me. And, and that'll force something for us. For some of us, it's going to force a discomfort. Um, it's going to force us to confront the fact that we have a difficulty um, about the mystery of all of this. God is with us. He's spiritual. There's a mystery to his presence with us, and we can't access it with our senses the way we're used to accessing all these other kinds of things. And where that leaves so many of us is we believe enough to not deny that he's with us. But instead, we live large portions of our life ignoring that He's with us. We were not saved simply to escape God's wrath. We were saved that we might enjoy God's presence. And here's what I've found. As somebody who has a hard time, as a pastor, as a person, remembering that God is with me, I have found that simple prayers about a present God help me to remember. They help me to remember that he's with me in Christ. He helped me to remember that I can't do this life without him, that there is no life without him. And so what I'm trying to work into my prayers are just these simple prayers about a present God. God, you're with me. The other thing it will do, I hope, is it will help us um, combat the doubt that plagues so many of our lives when it comes to this. Uh, Something has happened for some of us. God's word says that God is with you in Christ. I have intentionally tried to repeat throughout this sermon, God is with you in Christ. And for some of us, there has been this whisper that slithers into our thoughts and says, God is not with you. Uh, He might be with other people in the room, but not with you. Not with the kind of person like you who has the problems you do and the questions you do and the life that you do and has committed the sins that you do. And, and if he was with you, life wouldn't be so bad right now. And if he was with you, you wouldn't suffer like you are right now. If he was with you, you wouldn't have come in here with all the sin that you carry. Remember, brother, sister, remember the scheme of the enemy. Satan offers what's not his to give by getting you to doubt what you already have. God is with you in Christ. What I love about the truth of union with Christ is that it is not something that is as true as it is believed by Christians. It is something that is as true as it is secure in Christ. And that small act of praying is a small act of waging war against the lie. The lie whispers, the truth shouts, God is with you in Christ. God, you are with me even in my doubt. God, you are with me even in my sin. God, you are with me even in my suffering. God, you are with me even in my restlessness that should go away if you're with me. You're with me still. Life is life because God is here. In the presence of God, we are loved and changed and free. God is with us in Jesus. Would you take a step with Jesus today and take time to just pray a simple prayer to a present God? God, you are with me find a friend to pray that prayer together and then talk about all of the things that need to be talked about as that stirs things in your heart and your soul. We'll end again this morning with our catechism. I introduced this last week. We're gonna end every Sunday of this series reciting the Heidelberg Catechism together, the first question and answer of it. Um, Listen, it's new to me. I didn't grow up in a church that did this, but what's true is we are being catechized all around us into things that are not helping us live out our life in Christ. And so together, to gather together, oh, I'm just asking God to let these truths sink deeper into our hearts and lives as we exercise some truth together, as we declare these things to be true together, as uh, you get to hear from your own voice and from the voices of those around you what is true about you in Christ. It says, What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'll ask the question, and you out loud say the answer. Last week you did great, the 11 did better. So would you just be (laughs) even louder? Citizens Church, as a people who are in Christ, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Lord, we love you. We love you. And and those of us uh, who belong to you, who have put our trust in you, what's true is that we are united to you, Jesus. We're united to your identity. What's true about you is true about us. We're united to your story, what you have done, are doing, and will do. And we're united to your people. We are united with you as your people. You're with us. Uh, I repent, God. Um, Not for all of the ways that my life is ungodly, although that exists. But I also repent for all of the ways that my life is godless. Not explicitly sinful, but just implicitly apathetic. (laughs) To maybe one of the most core truths not maybe one of the most core truths in all of the scripture that you are with us God you didn't create and then wind it up like a clock and then back off to just watch it run you are intimately involved and present in the lives of your people in the life of your world and so just God confess say out loud, you're, you're here, oh God, you're here, you're with us, you're among us, and that is a kind of truth that we are unworthy of, could never earn on our own, but has been granted to us and gifted to us in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. We renounce the lie that life is better without you, and we embrace the truth that you are with us in Jesus. Help us, O oh God, to live lives marked by your presence. We love you. We thank you. Amen. Amen.